Uh, let's pray together. Bow your heads. God, I don't just ask this morning. I just want to declare in your presence that this morning there will be a person in this room who will be liberated from bondage, delivered from chains that bind them. There will be a, a heart that has been overcome by apathy that will be brought to life. There will be hard hearts that will become more soft. We ask for your spirit to fall and to have your way with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Do you know there's only one time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are often called, or they are called, the synoptic gospels. There's only one time where in the public ministry of Jesus, you have the word worship show up as something people do to God. Uh, you would think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke that there would be a lot of worshiping going on, and there wasn't much worship going on. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have worship of baby Jesus when he's born into the world. You have worship when uh, Jesus has been resurrected and he's alive. But in the middle, you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of worship going on. But there's one story where you do have the word worship described, what people were doing in a way to express adoration uh, to God or to Jesus, who was God in flesh. And it's the story of Matthew chapter 14 of Jesus walking on the water. So open your Bibles. If you have your, your Bibles in printed form in front of you, if you have a, a phone, a tablet, whatever it is, I want you to, to open up the Word. I want to read this story, <clears throat> and then I want to help this story come to life. I, this story just kept coming to me as a story that I think fits this week uh, for many of us, and it also fits the kind of cultural climate we find ourselves in right now. So I, I, I'm grateful for the word God's going to speak this morning. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. <clears throat> Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain uh, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from land, for the wind was against them. All right, I just want you to picture, go back and look at that. Apostles are in a boat going way out in the sea. Jesus is up on a mountain where he's honoring some quiet time with the Lord. Apostles, boat, sea, Jesus, mountain, praying, all right? And early in the morning, he, Jesus, came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And Peter said, I was just joking, man. I mean, if, if I was on a cliff and I said, you know, Tell me to jump, would you tell me to jump, you know? Uh, that, that's really not what it says, all right? Jesus says, come. And Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water. And he came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Which, by the way, is a phrase Jesus only uses when he's talking to followers throughout the Gospels. It's not a phrase he uses talking to unbelievers. You of little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. All right, I think there's something significant about the story when Jesus walks on the water, which I know for some people, especially those who, are, uh, who kind of have some skeptic leanings, you read a story like this, and sometimes even when you hear about miracles that happened back then, or miracles that happened today, you can ask, is it possible and the answer is yes. And then you follow that question up with, yeah, but did it really happen? 
And this is one of those miracles uh, that a lot of people debate. Like, did this really happen? Or maybe Jesus was actually like in shallow water or something like that, all right? But I think there is something significant about Jesus walking on the water and he's walking over the storms and through the storms. And this is the only time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where you have people in the public ministry of Jesus who begin worshiping Jesus. And I have a feeling somewhere in this room today, there's someone who's dealing with a storm in your life, and you need people to worship Jesus as the one who walks in and through the storms of your life. He's over them. He walks through them. He teaches you how to be victorious over them as well. Uh, can you think about the worst storm you ever went through? Some of you, maybe, uh, Julie, you're from Florida. You, maybe you um, decided to stay home when some hurricanes or tropical storms were coming through. Uh, I've, I've asked this story in some classes or smaller settings with some of you, and I've heard of uh, ice storms that have hit Memphis in, uh, a few decades ago. I bet some of you could remember where you were when you were driving when it rained so hard that you had to pull over because you could not see anything in front of you. Some of you may think of snowstorms. I, I, can you think of the worst? storm you've ever been in. And now can you think of a storm that God has led you through or a storm that you currently find yourself in and you're wondering, what is God doing? And I want you to identify this morning in the year 2016, a storm in your life that God has delivered you from or God has shown you how he was walking in and through the storm or I want you to identify a storm that you need to give over to God and ask for God to reveal to you how Jesus wants you to be victorious in that storm. Can you do that this morning while I preach? Before we go any further, I want to start out in verse 22 where it says this. He made them get into the boat. Now, especially because of the cultural climate and so much tension going on in our nation and in our world, I really sat with that quite a bit this past week, thinking, okay, what was it like for Jesus to make them get into a boat? And who was in the boat? It's the 12 apostles. And um, I don't know how often we think about this, but these 12 apostles, they weren't all alike. Now, we don't know all their occupations. We know six of their occupations, and let me call up a few volunteers this morning because I want you to see how this works. Uh, Trude and Noah, my two boys, I want you to come and stand over here. Where's Cooper and where's Pishon? I need you guys to come and join me, all right? Uh, put your hands together and welcome these little dudes up to the stage this morning. I want you all to stand right over there. Kip, I want to ask my assistant, Kip, if you'll come and, and help me real quick. Um, hey, Kip, will you grab that tie and the coat right over there? All right. Trude, I want you to put this on. All right? You and Noah... Get that on there, man. All right, now we need... All right, now, Cooper, I want you standing right over here, dude, all the way over of all days for me to have some participation. You people decided to be real generous and throw bags all over the stage. All right, here, here, we, here we go, here we go. All right, can you put that on uh, Pishon? Let's get him dressed up. And um, let's see here, we got... All right, uh, Noah, here, throw this. You and Truett are going to be my fishermen today. All right, and here we go. There you go. I want both of you holding that. Now, please do not hook me this morning, all right? Okay, don't... Whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, there we go. All right. Can you hold this somehow? And, and dude, where's my stuff for you? Okay. All right, Kip, can you get that on uh, Cooper over here? <clears throat> right over here, we have James and John. We know there are two sets of brothers who were apostles, James and John, Andrew and Peter. All right, so we got our fishermen over here. They wanted to be James and John because Noah's middle name is James. 
Uh, and do you remember what James and John, do you remember what the nickname, the nickname given to them in the Gospels, the sons of what? Sons of thunder. And right after that, it's only in some of your versions, it says, and their dad was a really hot human being, all right? Uh, just trust me, it's there, all right? It's, I, I'm glad I just got one amen from that this morning, all right? And right here we have Matthew the tax collector. Can you all say hi, Matthew, all right? We've got Matthew the tax collector. He's ready to crunch the numbers over here. And over here we have Simon the zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? Dude, zealots like to fight, man. Do you like to fight? Do you wrestle sometimes with your brothers? All right, whenever I look at you, I just want you to hold this, <laughs> this sword up, all right? Like you can do some damage, okay? Now, I want you to say, the, the group, hey, guys, hey, we're not fishing, all right? Do y'all want Christmas presents this year? Let's just put these down, all right? Just keep them down, pointed down, okay? All right. <clears throat> now, I want you to see just a few different things, okay? Because when it came to education, what we knew is that Matthew, the tax collector, probably had the best, edu- maybe had the best education out of anyone uh, uh, they're representing right now. To be a tax collector, you had to go through school. You had to know how to do things. You had to know how to reason. You had to have favor with the people in power who could give you a, a really good job. As for fishermen, look, I'm not saying all fishermen in the first century weren't smart, but usually fishermen were seen as people who were uneducated. Um, according to some people, fishermen, um, they, they took on the family business because they didn't have what it took to become some other occupation. So, so they fished. Now, some of you, 2,000 years later, maybe that hasn't changed much. Some fishermen are, can I just see a show of hands how many people like to fish, and then we can be the judge whether you're people who can reason or not. You know what I'm saying? All right. <clears throat> uh, and over here, a zealot could actually be almost anyone. All right, and I want to come back to this dude in just a moment. When it came to a social life, Matthew, the tax collector, they struggled making friends because they, they cheated a lot of people. Uh, we know that a social life, at least for Peter, Peter was married. We know for a social life for them, they, they had a team that they usually fished with. As for a zealot, their social life was kind of underground. But the people who were in the zealots, if, if they knew who each other were, they had a tight bond because there was this cause they were fighting for. Uh, when it came to messianic expectations, expectations of Jesus coming back, there were different expectations for these people. For the fishermen, there was, because uh, all, all of these people were Jews, there was an expectation that Jesus would come back and he would make things right. And for tax collectors, there was some kind of expectation for a Messiah. But for the zealot, for Simon the zealot, the expectation was that they were waiting too long for the Messiah to come back, so they had to do something about it. So these zealots were like the militia group. They were the people who would disguise themselves and go into a crowd, and occasionally, I don't want to go into details, but they would like walk up behind Roman soldiers in crowds and like, st- you know, do stuff that isn't nice to do, and then they would take off so they wouldn't be caught. When it came to politics, they were all over the place. You know, it's often uh, when people record on... Uh, Stuff back from 2,000 years ago, fishermen were often taxed 90%. It wasn't like you just found stuff to fish and you went to fish. You had to pay taxes to, to, have, uh, to go on a body of water. You had to pay taxes based on the number of fish you caught. Can you imagine being taxed 90% by the government? When it came to politics, you had the tax collector who had totally given into the ways of Rome. They chose to work for Rome. Many Jews saw them as heretics. And when it came to Simon the Zealot, when it came to politics and how they viewed the government, this was a revolutionary group. 
they chose to go underground because they, they were so upset with what was going on, they decided they were going to form a secret group and in this, some kind of secret way, they were going to take down the powers of Rome. Do you see how different these people are? All right, now, uh, I'm going to ask you guys to go back and sit with your mom. Can you all, um, undress may not be the right word to use, but can you, let's just, let's just take the coat off. Dude, y'all look amazing this morning. Y'all look great. Can you put your hands together and thank these people? Let's just put this up down. <clears throat> yeah, y'all can go on back, okay? And listen to the rest of this sermon like every Sunday, okay? Take notes. Go home and lead a devo with your family. <laughs> All right, here's why I think this is so important for us. Uh, Jesus did not call 12 people who were clones of one another. In that little group, there were fishermen, tax collectors. There was a, one who would go on to betray Jesus. There was a zealot. They were all Jews, yet they came into this Jesus community with different experiences, different convictions, different expectations. They had different motives. And Jesus brought them together into the most powerful force the world would ever know, and it was called the church. Now, we don't know a lot about those 12. We don't know if, like, before Jesus called the 12 to be the 12, we don't know how well they knew each other. All we know, we knew that we know they're Jews. And we, we know they had some occupations. Uh, but we don't know if they grew up uh, going to each other's birthday parties. Were they in the same youth group? Did they build habitat homes together? Did they serve the needy and feed the hungry? And did, we don't know if they engaged in any service projects. We knew they grew up kind of in the same region. I guess we assume they were around the same age. But we don't know how well these people knew each other. Jesus did not call together 12 people who had already formed a tight bond and we're on board with the same mission and vision in life. We assume they're from the same area. We know they're all Jews, but we don't know if they came from the same neighborhood. We do know they differ politically. They were in different socioeconomic brackets. And we know that how they viewed how the Jew should cooperate or not cooperate with the government was quite different. And I think this is why it's so important. Jesus didn't call together people who already loved and respected each other into community. Jesus called together a community and showed them for three and a half years how to love each other. Uh, we love to pick the communities that we want to be involved in. But what happens when we ask Jesus to put us in the community God needs us to be in and then teach us how to love whatever that may be? In this story, it says Jesus made them get into a boat. And we spend way much too much time on the shore when Jesus tells us to get in the boat, sitting there thinking, okay, who else is going to be in this boat? Because I want to be in boat number two or boat number seven, but do not put me in boat number five, six, nine, or ten. Because I know where those people have been and what they've done and how they have voted, so don't put me with them. Put me in boat two or four. Jesus says, get in the boat. And it says he made them get into a boat. I don't know what kind of force Jesus was using, but it says he made them get into a boat. I don't know if one of them was like, you know, Jesus, I did just eat a lot of fish and bread, and I don't think getting in a boat out on the water is the best thing for me right now. Maybe someone was like, Jesus, my mom told me never to get in a boat without floaties and a life jacket, and we don't have one, so I cannot do that. There may have been one of them that was like, I don't want to get in a boat with him. Jesus made them get into a boat. 
He encouraged them, told them to do it. Maybe at some point used physical force, like took them by the arm, put them on a boat. It says he made them get into a boat, and that boat left shore, and it's going out deep, way out there. And it goes out while Jesus goes up on a mountain to spend some time alone with God. And you read in your Bibles that some of your versions says that the waves came and it was tossing the boat around. That's way too calm of a word. Uh, In the Greek, it's not that it was being tossed. It was being battered, or even better, it was being tortured by the winds. We're not talking about tiny waves that are just kind of pushing this boat along. This boat is being tortured. This storm is hitting, and they're out there getting tortured by the waves and the winds, and Jesus is up on a mountain where he's praying alone with God. Have you ever felt a time in your life when you feel the storms of life hitting you and pushing you to and fro like you were losing control and you look around and where is God and it's like God's over there and you can kind of see him but he's way up on the mountain and you want God to be in the midst of your storm and they're out there getting beaten by the storm and Jesus is up honoring quiet time with his father I think there's something important about that Jesus is honoring quiet time And his disciples are out there in a storm for hours. And Jesus let them go out in the storm for hours before he came down the mountain to enter into their distress. Uh, Now, some of the storms of your life, they are self-inflicted. Some of the storms in your life are due to sin. Some of the storms in your life are not due to your own sin. It's due to the sins of other people. Some of the storms of life are just due to current climate and, and things that are going on in the culture and decisions other people make and what's happening in the world. And sometimes it feels like we're being tossed to and fro and, and Jesus is, is over there praying. Jesus honored a quiet time with the Lord because Jesus tried to do that before he fed the 5,000 earlier in Matthew 14. John the Baptist had just died and Jesus wanted to get alone with the Father to grief. Yet he ends up feeding people. After feeding people, he sends them out, and he goes up where he prays. He, and he lets his disciples go for a little while before he decided to do something about it. I think there's also a word here about the church that sometimes what we want to do is we want to get up on a mountain, come to the Lord. What we care about is personal quiet time with the Lord, and we think that's what it means to be a Christian when God sometimes is calling you, all right, now it's time to get down off the mountain, and you go and you enter into the storms of other people's lives. And sometimes it's God who is calling you to stay on the mountain and honor the time because sometimes we see distress or we see storms in people's lives and we run into them when we should be honoring quiet time with the Lord so that we have strength to pour into the world. Yet there comes a time when people are called to leave the prayer time and go into a storm. And after a few hours, Jesus does that. And he's walking across the seas. Uh, And when he does... They, they notice him, and this conversation begins uh, to, to transpire, begins to happen between them. So I, I don't know how far they were from each other, but I'm assuming if this boat is getting tortured, Jesus is fairly close to the boat. So they think it's a ghost. Jesus says, it's not a, I'm not a ghost. Uh, don't be afraid. And they're like, yeah, because we don't have a reason to be afraid. You know, a lot of times it is the command that shows up more than any other command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. And most of the times whenever God or an angel or Jesus says, don't be afraid, people have every reason in the world to be afraid. 
Like Mary is just sitting there at night and an angel visits her to tell her, oh, hey, by the way, uh, there's a baby in your womb. And the angel says, don't be afraid. And if you're Mary, you're like, uh, this does not happen every day. Like an angel just shows up in the room. I have reasons to be afraid. These fishermen are out in boats. These people are out in boats and they see a guy walking on the water. This isn't something you see every day. You would be afraid too, right? And they think it's a ghost. Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. And then Peter says this, if it's you, tell me to come. Have you ever noticed before, Jesus is not the one who invites Peter onto the water to walk towards him. Peter asks for permission to come. Jesus doesn't make the initiative on this one. Peter does. And there are times throughout the Bible and times in your life right now when I think God is trying to give you an assignment or a task or a command or an invitation because God is usually the one who initiates that. But I can't help but wonder, maybe every once in a while, God is waiting for us to ask Him for permission to come wherever it is God is going and whatever it is God is wanting us to do. God, where are you? And what are you doing? And where do you want me? And God, I think I see you in this place. And if that's you, will you ask me to come? I wonder if God's waiting for someone in this room today to say, God, if it's you and you're there, I want you to ask me to come to you. Peter asked for permission and Jesus grants the permission and Peter begins to walk. Now, you've read the story before, right? Maybe some of you haven't. It's when Peter notices the waves that he begins to sink. He begins to sink. It doesn't say he is already sinking. He has not gone under the surface. He begins to sink because of the distractions, the exhaustion, whatever, it else, uh, whatever else in his life was keeping him from keeping his focus on Jesus. He begins to sink, and it says Jesus caught him. It's not just a hand providing a little bit of encouragement. It says Jesus caught him as he was falling. On his way down, Jesus catches him. And somewhere in the room today, there's someone who feels like you were falling and you need the reminder today that Jesus is here to catch you. Some of you feel like you have already fallen. You have, you're on the brink of giving up and you need to know Jesus is here to catch you, to lift you up from the storm. And when Jesus lifts Peter up, when he catches him, they begin walking over this storm together. And you're not given the details. We don't know what it was like. We know Jesus and Peter, and Peter begins to fall. Jesus catches him. The boat's, I don't know, a few feet, a few yards away. I don't know how far it was. And you're just told that they get back to the boat together. But I think you have to assume that Jesus picked Peter up, and together, hand in hand, arm in arm, maybe side by side, with Jesus teaching him how to walk over the storm, Jesus teaches Peter how to walk through and over the storm that they are currently in. Um, and it's not until they get back into the boat that the wind cease. It's not when Jesus caught Peter that the wind ceased and they walked over calm water. The, the storm continued. Um, Jesus needs to teach some of us how to walk over and through the storms in our lives right now in a way of victory. Somewhere today there is someone who needs to look at the storm in your life and say, Storm? You may continue in my life, but I'm leaving church today declaring that Jesus is teaching me how to walk victoriously over you and through you. For Kip and Elena, and I could go on with some of you, Suzanne, who have lost loved ones this year, grief's not going away, and you need to be able to look grief in the face today and say, grief, you will continue to come into my life. 
But I'm walking out of church today declaring that Jesus is giving me the strength to walk over and to walk through you. Someone needs to leave today saying, this sin that I've allowed in my life for way too long, this is the day that I'm saying Jesus is teaching me to walk over and to walk through you victoriously. And, and somewhere there are chains that need to be broken, bondage that needs to be left behind because we need to get in a boat. And there in the midst of the storm, it's where some of the best worship happens. It says they worshiped him. Now, if you look deeper in your Bible, it says they sang two songs and had an opening prayer and one song, and then there was communion, a song, and then the sermon, and then it was over, all right? <clears throat> it says they worshiped him. They adored Jesus. They, were, they knew in that moment, like, this is, this is more than some show-and-tell story of Jesus. This is more than Jesus the, just demonstrating the power of God. It's Jesus demonstrating the power of God and showing that the function of Jesus' life is to move into the distress of the world, to teach them how to walk over and through the storms of life. I can't help but think when these apostles... In the book of Acts, after Jesus rose from the dead, the church is spreading, the gospel's moving, people are coming to Jesus. And yet, there were times they found themselves in jail, in prison, being persecuted, under threats. And I can't help but just think of them sitting in a circle saying, hey, life's pretty hard right now, isn't it? But do you remember when Jesus walked over that storm? And if he walked over that storm and taught us how to do the same, what makes us think he's not walking over and through this storm right now too? I want to ask our prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places today. Shepherds, if you will, move around. We have some female prayer leaders who are here. Because I think this is a day that we need to take advantage of some of these places. I would love this morning, Wayne and Kelly, two of our elders are here. I would love for them to hear from at least two people of a storm that God has defeated or is in the process of teaching you how to walk over it. I would love for you to come and just whisper it to him. It doesn't even have to come in front of this church. Just as some kind of testimony that we are noticing today how God is working in and through our lives. We've set up these prayer stations throughout the room where you have elders, you have women uh, who are here to pray with you. And I think this is the day that somebody needs to move to them and say, I need you to give God thanks for how he is teaching me to walk over and through this storm. Or it, it needs to be a cry of your heart today that I am sinking and I'm just asking you in the church to pray that God will catch me just like he caught Peter. We're going to sing a couple of songs about uh, God's intervention, how God doesn't leave us alone. And as you move around for prayer, for confession, as you celebrate how God is doing things in your life, or you stay in your place, I just want us as a church to lift this up to God, the one who has conquered the storms, the one who's inviting us into a deeper place. Let's stand together. Let's sing.